This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Inktophone Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Neil Gaiman's 2019 miniseries, Good Omens. read the book and now we're on to the show here. I was really excited about this adaptation and, and I'm having a lot of fun with it so far. We're, we're three episodes in. Uh, what are your feelings? It's good. I mean, it's funny. It's it's pitch perfect in the casting, I would say. You know, uh, I mean, obviously, this is being showrun by Neil Gaiman himself. And I was trying to think, like, there's not many times where that is the case. Um, I, I think maybe there's been a few Stephen King productions where he, he kind of adapted his own stuff, but I feel like that's, it's, you just don't see this very often. And it's interesting to, to analyze to me what effect that has on this adaptation. Cause I think it does have a pretty profound effect on it. Um, and I, you know, starting with casting being so perfect, I think is, is because one of the creators is probably one of the, one of the key people behind picking these actors, uh, to play these roles. I mean, I think it's. It just goes to show how difficult it is to be a showrunner. Like, it's a it's a totally different world than than something like writing a novel or or even making a film because it's it's you know this is six hours worth of material that they have to film. Sure that they shot way more than that, and just the, all of the little intricacies and every little detail have to be consistent through six six hours worth of content. So it just I can't even imagine how overwhelming it must have been for him to go from you know, being a novelist and, or screenplay writer for, for films uh, to, to moving into something like this. I mean, there's nothing he can't do. I mean, I think he's nailing it. Uh, the show's stylish. It's well shot um, and well conceived and uh, very, very faithful so far. We've only we've only watched three episodes. I know you said that at the top. Um, we did read the book over the last two episodes of the podcast. We talk about that at length. So we kind of know where this thing's going, but we also don't know what changes are going to be made. Um, and there are some changes. There are a few. Uh, we'll definitely yeah. be highlighting those as we go. But we're not going to talk about where things are going. So if you haven't seen the you know episodes four through six, you're safe. We definitely won't be talking about you know where this thing is headed. We're going to keep it to just these three episodes. Yeah. I think the main thing that they nailed was the tone. I think that although it's maybe not quite as... Um, I think it almost feels more coherent, if that makes sense, as a, as a show, like being fleshed out and seeing some of this, it, it's more coherent. Uh, it's almost less erratic and all over the place, which I kind mm-hmm. of enjoy. And that's not to take anything away from the show. Um, I just think it's it's different. And I, I really think that they nailed the tone. And like you said, the casting is is just amazing. I David Tennant and Michael Sheen are just absolute charisma machines. They're, they're mm-hmm. side by side. Anytime they're having banter back and forth, they're killing it and it's just so much fun. All of it's been so much fun so far. And, and it's, I have to say the, the, I shouted out loud when, and I was in glee when I, <laughs> Francis McDormand was the voice of God. Oh, okay. I, I did not know going in that Francis McDormand was going to be God. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't have that reaction uh, to that part, but uh, I mean, I'm fine with it. I guess I, I'm, I don't know Frances McDormand from. Uh, she was she she was in Fargo. She was like the the, the lead in Fargo. Uh oh the the original the original film. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. She was recently in um, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh yeah, that's why I missed that one. Yeah. She yeah she's I mean she's fantastic. I got to be one of the finest actors out there right now. She's amazing. Cool. Um, and so to have her as as the voice of God, I just thought that was amazing. Nice. Well, I I went into this thing like. I remember being kind of worried. Um, you know, I get kind of anxious before seeing these adaptations historically because we've been burned a few times. Um, for the most part, I feel like we've been lucky and we've gotten a lot of really good adaptations over time for the things we cover. Uh, but every now and then we get one that's kind of a clunker. And I was a little bit worried going into this. I'm like, oh, I hope this is going to this is going to feel right for this. And then I think it was like just, you know, the first five or ten minutes in with the garden and and Crowley and Aziraphale talking and uh i don't know like the whole thing where he gives the the humans fire he gives them the flaming sword and they're fighting like a lion who bats <laughs> away the sword and so it's so cool that's and, what i mean they they just nailed that tone right yeah it just made me smile it's so funny and in in such a genuine way and and so i immediately felt like okay this is they're doing it right and then the intro the title like the title card the intro sequence is really good and just uh it shows that style it sets the tone for the show like what kind of show this is going to be so i do think there's going to be an adjustment period for people who are coming in cold um who have not read the book and are like what is this good omen show um and it's going to be a small adjustment period i think where they're going to have to realize what kind of show this is because uh, it's, it is a little unusual. I don't, I mean, it's, it actually feels very original in that way and that it doesn't directly remind me of a lot of other things. I, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that it's the nature of the, the book as well, because it's just so it's, I feel like the book is unique as well. I think, yeah. I think oh, that yeah. it's just the, the tone that it's hitting and, and the seriousness that it's handled with while also, you know, the entire, the entirety of the story is, is played for a joke and yet there's so much more to it. And, when you let yourself go and, and really like let the story take you, it's just, I don't know. I think it's incredible. The the title sequence that you were talking about, I want to definitely talk about that. Amazing. I was so happy. Mm-hmm. Was, it was so cool, so creative. If you've read the book, there's tons of little, like the entire story plays out basically on screen, kind yeah. of, I guess. Yeah, in some ways. In some ways. I mean, at least you get the details of things that are coming, not like the actual story. Mm-hmm. But and it's very like Terry Gilliam esque, like that yeah. sort of like Monty Python, old school British humor, and and I thought that was, I was like that is so perfect for the tone of this because it's yeah. very like Monty Python. That's like I'm sure that Neil Gaiman's a fan. Yeah. Okay. So you're not the I'm not the only one who got that. I got those vibes, and I was like, well, maybe I just don't watch enough stuff, and and that's my one touchstone for that kind of humor. But yeah, those those uh, cartoonish like almost like cutouts and and stuff that we get. Reminds me of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail and some of those like, you know, brief scenes we get of that in that movie. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That was that was where I went as well. Uh, and to speak about Terry Gilliam there, he was actually set to direct a, a film adaptation at one point. Mm. Have you have you heard of this? I heard I heard that, but I didn't do much research into it. You, like how far along did it get? I think that there was there was funding for it. Like they were moving oh, wow. forward with it. So this is um, he tried to adapt it several times over 10 years before admitting defeat, apparently. He came closest in January of 2002 when he, when he had Robin Williams on board to play Aziraphale and Johnny Depp was signed on as for the part of Crowley. Oh, interesting. Had, 
2002 was still in the height of Depp's, you know, before his big decline, I feel like we've seen over the last 10 years. This is pre-Pirates uh, of the Caribbean. Pre-Pirates. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought that was right around Pirates. I guess, yeah, yeah. I guess that would have been I think it was like that. 03 yeah. or so. I think okay. 03 would have been. So, yeah, I mean, it's like Johnny Depp was like hitting his stride, I would say. Right. And you could definitely see him for the role of Crowley back then. I, I mean, at least I could. I can see it. Uh, both of those castings to me, and I'm a fan of Robin Williams as well. Um, but honestly, what we got, I think, is better. I, I think that's more pitch perfect for the characters from the book. I agree. I think that this is Hollywood casting, right? Like Robin yeah. Williams and Johnny Depp. Like you're getting a, you're getting a big budget crazy movie if those two are on board. And like I, yeah, again, I love Robin Williams, so. I mean, I would have liked to have seen that as well. And Terry yeah. Gilliam is just an absolute mad genius mastermind. Yeah, He's awesome definitely. in every way. So I would have liked to have seen some sort of, I don't know, adaptation. It would have been. So so we talked a little bit earlier about the erratic nature of this. And even in the show, I was realizing that reading the book, I think, equipped me to be introduced to a ton of characters. Um, but I remember like, like the first episode, they introduced us to like 30 characters, it feels like rapid fire right and then episode two they just pile more on and i think it's really episode three where it finally kind of slows down a little bit with the introduction introduction of new characters um and and i remember that was kind of a thing in the book too but i i do wonder if we hadn't read the book would that be more disorienting for us or would we be okay with it because that's just kind of how this show is that's the style right but i could see that being a big problem if you're trying to adapt it into a film right like you have, you're going to be cutting tons of characters. There's no yeah, way you're going you to introduce 30 characters. It's just, you're right. not going to have time. So uh, just to finish this up here, basically he, he had funding. I think he had somewhere around $50 million from investors and, um, he just needed a studio and a bit more, and maybe a little bit more money. And I guess his confidence in the project was shattered when he found himself in like a post nine 11 pre pirates of the Caribbean Hollywood, where every studio and producer he met told him the same thing, which was nobody wants to see, Johnny Depp movies. Oh man, that's crazy, and that's right before Pirates. <laughs> right. Uh, how wrong Hollywood can be sometimes. Um, well, it's like I mean, but at the end of the day, like, no, I they would say where the the cycle has come back around, and I don't really think there's a ton of, you know, people aren't really expecting to see Johnny Depp in movies right now, and no, no. who knows if that that ebb and flow will come back again eventually. Well, let's distance ourselves from Johnny Depp because he's not attached to this project and I'm happy <laughs> with what we got. And so I think ultimately I can be glad that it led it led to this. Right. And, you know, it's it's obviously that kind of hindsight thing where you can look back and say, oh, you know, it all worked out in the end. So it's all good. I'm sure it was it was harrowing. I'm sure it was frustrating and all of that, uh, especially for Neil Gaiman and, and Terry Pratchett. Um, so but I am I am happy we got what we got. I've been enjoying it. I, again, I think this is perfect casting that we got here. Michael Sheen and, and David Tennant are just amazing in their roles. Uh, I did want to talk about a, kind of a feeling I got from this, which I hadn't felt in a long time. So I, I don't know that I can really even put it into words, but I just wanted to say it because I felt uh, this is how okay. I felt when, when I was watching the show. Try, after, try and put it into words. <laughs> after the intro sequence, sequence, after we get like, you know, the birth of the the, the earth and and the age that it was you know they the basically the entire monologue in the beginning when, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The they, they do like a montage of 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 all this stuff yeah so we meet the characters um with the garden of eden and then everything mm -hmm. goes on and on and on and then we see them in like modern day i got this feeling that i haven't felt since 
the first time I saw a Harry Potter movie because as an American audience member, I'm so used to seeing American films and American TV shows. And there was something about just, and maybe it was just the fact that they were in London and it was probably some sort of, I'm sure that this is mostly a British, a British production, but it felt mm. there was something about it that was reminiscent of the first time that I saw Harry Potter and how it's just like, it's like, a, maybe it's like a slight culture shock. Maybe it's like something to do with the way that they tell stories there or something like that. And I don't, and I think that yeah. this is separate from the tone of the book because it, it's not necessarily the tone of, and how like aloof it is. It's more just the production and, and the way that things were progressing. It felt, I don't know even the TV show felt very British. British to me is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Interesting. So maybe the, I think it sounds like there's a bit of a JK Rowling effect on you that, that now whenever you see England, you're, you're just going to be happy and think of magic and Harry Potter. <laughs> well, I think that was me for a while. Right. So that was yeah. my, you know, my introduction to it. I was, a, I was a child mm-hmm. when I read those Harry Potter books. So that was definitely my introduction to that. And I've seen tons of, I've consumed tons of British media since then. Yeah. And I feel like there's, there's different tones and styles and like, I just, for some reason it, it's like reminiscent. Maybe it's more of just the, the, the them, something mm-hmm. to do with like the younger kids and the way that they handle the, it just felt like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Chamber of Secrets to me, like something right. about, it felt like two projects we've covered by the way. <laughs> yeah. So it's something, it maybe it's something in there that kind of felt familiar yet. I don't know. It was, I, I like I said, I can't really put it into words. Well, it's light, it's lighthearted. So I can see some tone overlap maybe. Um, but yeah, man, I get that. So before we get into our actual thoughts on the first episode, um, I just want to mention we have launched a YouTube channel. And this week we released our Howl's Moving Castle episodes, which are uh, our back catalog of episodes. We put them up on YouTube. So if you haven't checked those out, that'd be a great way to experience them for the first time. Um, yeah, so we covered Diana Wynne Jones's novel across two episodes. And then we did one on the Hayao Miyazaki, you know, legendary uh, anime film. So those were super fun episodes. Check them out. Yeah. So going forward, we're going to be full spoilers. We've, you know, we've had light spoilers, I feel like so far, but this is going to be f- just for the three episodes we're, we're covering for the first three episodes. Yeah. And again, we're not going to address anything beyond that for now. So the first episode is called In the Beginning. Aziraphale and Angel and Crowley a demon have grown fond of earthly life and have formed an alliance to complete various blessings and temptations whenever the other may require them. Crowley is ordered to deliver the infant Antichrist to a hospital overseen by a group of satanic nuns. The nuns inadvertently place the child with the wrong family. The demon Haster sets the the hospital on fire after he believes the nuns' job to be done. Aziraphale and Crowley, both reluctant to facilitate Armageddon, hope to influence the child in equal heavenly and hellish measures, such that he becomes normal. They go to the wrong child's house. The two lie to their respective leaders, Archangel Gabriel and head demon Beelzebub, on Warlock's 11th birthday, Aziraphale and Crowley wait at the boy's party for a hellhound to arrive. When the hound does not arrive, they realize that they have the wrong boy. The hellhound locates the Antichrist Adam Young, and conforming to the wishes of Adam, transforms into a small dog. Adam names the hound Dog, initiating the countdown to Armageddon. I think we're just going to hop around within the episode. Uh, I want to give a shout out to John Hamm. Uh, he is he is playing Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, right? Which is kind of an added character. Did we get any Gabriel in the book? So I have some information about this, but I don't. I think we he was mentioned in the book. His, yeah, his name he, is mentioned in the book. I don't think he does much. No, I don't think so yeah. either. So th- this is some pretty cool Gaiman and John Hamm stuff. So basically, um, what what Gaiman has said is a lot of the trappings and the idea of what propelled book two into existence wound up integral 
to what I did in Good Omens, the TV series. So kind of some of the ideas that him and Terry Pratchett have thought up for any sequel going forward have been blended into this series here, oh, which I thought was really cool. That is cool. So in the first book, he added, we, we never see hell and we never see heaven. We never actually see the people behind the scenes who are very, very keen on Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes on to say, I got, I got the lovely, wonderful John Hamm to play the angel Gabriel and sell you on the whole thing. I don't know if it would have been as easy without John. Uh, when Gaiman came up for the idea of Gabriel, who is not in the novel, he, he said, I just thought, well, he has to be the best looking, best dressed, convinced of his own righteousness boss you've ever had. And it doesn't even occur to him in any universe that he could be wrong about anything. And who do I know that could play that and pull it off? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Gaiman, Gaiman wrote to John Hamm. He says, I sent him an email. Dear John Hamm, some years ago, you told me that Good Omens was your favorite book when you were in college and that it was unfilmable. And I made the mistake, and I have made the mistake of turning it into television. And would let, and would you mind playing Gabriel? He isn't in the book. Gaiman received a simple response. The actor wrote back, "Yes," and signed the email H A M M Ham, in capital letters, which is how John Ham signs everything. So he just said, "Yes, Ham." <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I had heard that a lot of the cast, if not all of the cast, were big Neil Gaiman fans. Um, and fans of the novel. And that's always cool too, right? Like when, cause it's like you can, I think they put a certain loving care into their performances when they're, when they're fans of the source material. I have to imagine that's how you get someone like Nick Offerman to come in and just play like a fairly throwaway character. Like, I mean, he's, he's the, he's the father of the, of Warlock who um, doesn't end up being the, the actual Antichrist who he's supposed to be. I um, feel like we're going to end up seeing him again because in the credits he's wearing like, he's wearing like a, monk robe looking thing oh yeah i'm sure we'll see him again and i'm sure he, you know he's done a couple things but like ultimately when we're talking screen time it's a guy bit part, has yeah. a, a tiny percentage of the screen time and yeah. it's nick offerman you know like he's he's especially for tv he's used to being pretty big um and i think you get someone like that to come in because he's just excited about the project and wants to be attached to it and and if he if that's the role he gets that's the role he gets yeah, and which he was he was really funny and it was you know it's 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 such a new age thing to think that he would be so into his job and not care about being there for the birth and it's it's so it's so funny. Well, and I wasn't I didn't want to take anything away from his performance. I thought it was good. I thought I thought it was funny. I thought uh him being on the uh, essentially FaceTime with his wife and their interaction was funny and then of course the president being a dick in the background I wonder if that's any sort of comment on our modern state of affairs I don't know um <laughs> but um yeah it was good and, and I enjoyed it and I also think it helped to have one father not present and be um be be on a screen because I think the what actually went down at the order and at the at the, the ch- with the chattering nuns was clearer to me seeing it on screen than reading it personally yeah i felt the same way and i think there were like small adjustments that gaiman made in order to to make it more believable like uh sending the other father out and saying like you have to get out of here and he has to stay outside and then having the doctor who is who is crowley delivering delivering the antichrist i think that's what happened in the book though actually (laughs) he was he was sent to the wrong room by the by the father yeah, I think the father was standing outside when Crowley first walked up, and they had they had almost the exact same interaction where he said, uh, "You know, where are we?" And he says, "Oh, we're in room three or whatever." And because he, he thinks that he's the doctor, and Crowley thinks that he's part of the that he's in on it, but he's not. I'm pretty sure that gotcha. that whole interaction happened in the book. Actually, for some reason, I remembered it being different. I thought that he delivered. He he like we just walked in and handed the baby to to um, Mary Loquacious, uh, and then she took the baby to the wrong place. But I, yeah. I don't know. Well, he does, and he does that. He still does that, but it's a little different. Yeah. Um. 
yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's talking about things that we misremember or forget. I don't know if maybe I just didn't think about it as like clearly or not, but um, I didn't realize that Aziraphale gave humanity the flaming sword in like a Prometheus type way. I don't know. I think that was added. I, I think, I think that was it added did happen, but I think they didn't. Maybe they just didn't like lampshade it like they did in the show like it was very clear that that's what happened but i remember there was talk about him misplacing the sword and all this stuff and maybe it was more like accidentally the humans got it and used it and that was supposed to be the implication whereas here it was like he gave it to them very deliberately Um, well it was definitely a choice in the show this time to say like aziraphale made a choice that was potentially not the angelic choice by giving these humans you know what i mean like i think that was that was not whether he whether he did give it to them or not in the book it was never addressed that he in some way made potentially made a decision that was not seen as like angelic which i want to shoot back to the garden of eden Mm. uh just because i really thought that was i I, and and you talked about how how the show looks it looks great it looks so cinematic and having the having the lush jungle of eden in the desert i thought was such a great like i'd never thought of any sort of garden of eden situation where it was in the desert you know those big walls the escape with the flaming sword with the the line we've talked about is so funny to me i was it was the funniest thing and they're having that conversation up on the wall crowley and and aziraphale and that's kind of where Crowley's like, did you maybe well, this is weird. Maybe I made the decision that was supposed to be made and you made mm-hmm. the wrong decision. And I, and, and then the rain came in and started and then Aziraphale like puts his wing out and, and shades Crowley from it. I just, yeah. all of it was, it was really solid character. It's the start of, and, of, you know, a legendary bromance, I think, uh, that we get here. Uh, their, their, their relationship. You say bromance, but. Maybe potentially actual romance. Yeah, yeah I, it was really. There's a lot of vibes in the show that I'm getting. That's like it might be romance, and especially episode three. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny because I think this is like, this is one of the most. You know, I, I I don't know if this is true. I'm not really into the fan fiction community, um, but I, I just know there's lots of like slash fic about them actually being lovers. These two mm-hmm. characters and. Uh, you know, over the last 30 years, you know, I'm sure there's been tons written about it. So I really, it felt like, uh, they're embracing that. They're saying like, yeah, let's, uh, let's, so. let's, let's, well, let's throw just... some more fu- fuel to the fire. I don't think they're right. going to come out and say that that's what's actually going on, but they are adding fuel to the fire for sure. Right. I don't think they have to though. Like you, like, yeah. like I think that that's fun. I think it's, yeah. it's worth leaving the things unsaid so that we can infer. Yeah. I, I think that's smart. And well, I, and, and I, I think it's, I think it's either way. Like if, if you want to look at it as, a really it could also just be looked at as like a really deep platonic friendship and love yep. in that way right. too and and a very deep one um and especially you know the characters are described as being sort of asexual in the books uh it says angels are asexual right and um so you can lend itself to that too um so i think it's open to either either interpretation i don't think either one's wrong honestly and i think it's more just like however you want to think about it go for it um either way it's in, it's endearing to me and I, I just love seeing the two on screen together and and especially episode three they just have some really great moments so so to jump to the next scene we see gabriel meeting with aziraphale and aziraphale's like eating sushi and this is when we see Gabriel kind of like talking down and saying like, how could you ever put that food in your mouth? And, and like my body's a temple. And yet he's still tempted by like the clothes and stuff. He loves the clothes. And, oh, and so he's like, he's getting into the human stuff while also like looking down on it. Um, I just thought that was really, really strong he's, for He's so funny. Character. I think, I think there's a, there's a scene in the next episode that is my favorite Gabriel scene, but I, I think it's jump the gun. I know what you're talking about. It was so yeah. funny. Uh, I wanted to talk about, uh, 
Hester and, and Ligger because oh, I yeah. thought I, I like that their costumes are weird and I like I'm really into that that they went like they went for it there's like a lizard yeah. on one of their heads and like yeah there's just... a frog on another person's head at one point because there's like a lizard on one's head and then I think when they're actually underground at one point there's a frog on on the other guy's head um it's really weird i don't know what's going on with it i don't know if we'll ever get an explanation of it um but it's it's funny it's 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 funny but also kind of like dark and scary in, in a cool right. way i don't know it's interesting for yeah. sure a lot of the costuming really works for me in the show and the way that they use colors the you know obviously the angels are going to be a lot more light colors and the demons darker yeah. but they, they did some interesting stuff with like the styles of clothing and the, especially mm. when they jump around um to the different time periods which was also a lot of fun Let's get to the the actual switcheroo situation. They they did yeah. like a card trick, right? And mm-hmm. and the, the oh, Francis yeah. McDormand doing the narration is is so much fun to me. I find it to be a great way. We've talked about this with a lot of our coverage. Narration is such a great way to bring the prose specifically from the book right into the show. And mm-hmm. I think it's so much fun to hear Francis McDormand reading stuff straight from the straight from the book and and explaining things in a more clear way like this this card trick I felt was really really easy representation of what went on and I feel like audiences can follow that. I think it worked in this project for sure. I do think there are times where you got to be careful with, you know, sort of voiceover narration. Um but in a project like this and a show like this, I think it works perfectly. Oh, and and uh early on we get David Tennant going into this uh telephone box although it's red and not blue. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think that's the Doctor Who? I do. All right. You, you, you tip the bucket now. (laughs) Now now we got to talk about all this. Uh, Okay. Because I haven't watched any tenant Doctor Who. Well, you should. I haven't. Well, because I I actually, you know, like, and this is going to, this is going to out me in a way that, that, you know, people aren't going to like, but, uh, I haven't ever been able to get into Doctor Who. I mean, it's, it's again, like I was just talking about British, the way that like, it's like a culture shocking thing. And like, it's very campy, very sci-fi. I totally, there's tons of people who can't get into it and I yeah. I don't fault anybody for that. But I do say like, if you want something fun and whimsical, check out Doctor Who. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's a fun time and it's very like, it's like, you know, it's so old now that it has such a, it's a such an amazing legacy and well, it's still it's, going strong. The I, We may have talked about this on a different episode. I'm not sure, but uh, th- I've never known like where to start because people always have different recommendations about where to start the thing. And then, yeah, I think it, I have to be in a certain kind of mood where I'm, or I'm, signed up for that sort of like lighthearted campiness that we get i mean we could talk about it off air but if yeah I mean, just, <laughs> for, for me like if i was going to tell somebody I, I i started with the ninth doctor just the, when the show came Is back i started it i started no i started it with eccleston and that's the ninth doctor so if if you know that's when it restarted and i felt like that was the best jumping on point granted that's not the e- those aren't the easiest episodes to watch I would say probably the easiest thing to jump onto now for like a modern viewer would probably be 11 with Matt Smith. But I mean, I think Tenet, it's, it's a lot of endearing, great writing, just, they really had a handle on the show at that time. And, Mm. you know, it's waxed and waned, but I think it's still going strong and, and it's still fun to watch. Well, I'm excited for the, for the, for the new doctor that was announced. We probably are going to have to cut all of this. (laughs) No, she's, I mean, she, a a full season has come out since, since uh, she's been the doctor. Oh, is it's out? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. I you brought up Doctor Who, so I got to talk about a couple of things. There's some clear Doctor Who references in the show. Um, when Mister Young rolls up with his car to the mm-hmm. to the nunnery, his license plate says Sidrat, which spelled backwards is TARDIS. Um, oh. As as so, I mean, I think this one was a clear. This was probably the most clear reference that was made was when 
when he called him when he called Crowley doctor as he came up and and Crowley kind of looked at the camera and was like oh doctor <laughs> yeah he's like because obviously yeah, he that was went a... over my head because I wasn't thinking about it as as, as prominently but yeah makes right sense. so it's like very clearly a nod to like oh he's a doctor he was a doctor or something about doctors so yeah any that that was like an easy one there but uh there's a lot of there's a lot more Easter eggs we can talk about them as we go maybe a little more but interestingly enough the guy who directed these all the episodes Douglas McKinnon also worked on Sherlock, which is another big BBC show. Mm -hmm. And and that show has a lot of references in this show as well, which we can talk about as we go. Uh, Yeah, which I felt felt was pretty fun. Uh, One of the one of the prominent ones, which I don't know if you realized or not, is that Benedict Cumberbatch is the voice of Satan. No, wait, wait, wait. So is that who comes through the radio? Yeah, we hear Satan. Okay, through the radio. I think through the radio. Cumberbatch, I did not know that. Yeah. So we That's got amazing. Benedict Cumberbatch. And so this guy who directed all of these episodes directed a lot of episodes on the Sherlock show. So there's a lot of overlap yeah. from from people who were in Doctor Who and then people who were in Sherlock and who also worked on this with Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman also wrote an episode of Doctor Who in which Michael Sheen was a voice actor on the episode. Oh, cool. And the one I noticed was we got Mycroft in, in episode three, um, which was cool because I think he's great in, the, in that show. So I, I mean, know, the, obvious one, but I, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, that that was really cool. And like to jump to that, um, the guy who plays Mycroft is Mark Gaddis and Mark Gaddis is the co-creator of Sherlock. So the mm-hmm. guy who plays Sherlock Holmes brother in the show is also the co-creator of that. Yeah, show. right. Yeah. A lot of BBC, a lot of BBC like ecosystem going on in this yeah. show. So uh, this, for whatever reason, this made me think about uh, Tennant's performance of Crowley. And uh, I just want to highlight, so a couple things. The the I'm glad that he wears sunglasses a lot. Because while I like the contacts, uh, sometimes it can be hard to sort of connect with a scene. Because those eyes are so weird. Like, they're so unusual. And so it's good that I think he has the, the sunglasses on pretty frequently. Um, it, it, I, I've liked the way they've handled that throughout. And I think the the, the sunglasses are a cool fashion yeah. piece there too. I think we're going to see a lot of people wearing those sunglasses from the show. <laughs> uh, and I think I think I was noticing a lot of very extreme close ups in his eyes, and it was like I, I think it was supposed to be uncomfortable. I was yeah. I was also feeling like oh, like they were whenever they would shoot a zero fail and some of the angels and stuff, it would be very you know well lit like very brightly lit as well um mm-hmm. just normal comfortable shots and then sometimes when they're shooting the demons they get very close and in like make you feel uncomfortable i was noticing right. some of that stuff yeah and then he has this way of swaying when he walks that i that i imagine is supposed to be well also kind of reminiscent of like a like a mick jagger like rock star type walk but also i think reminiscent of him being a snake right and being sort of slithery and 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 uh, I think that all works really well, and I like that that he brought that to the performance. So we get the scene where they're drinking together and kind of talking about the apocalypse and everything that's going to go on and how they're going to lose their way of life that they currently have. And then they have the sobering up moment, which I thought mm-hmm. was really weird in the show, which, you know, weird is a good thing around here. So yeah, I, I just thought it was super funny that where they're like, and then the, the <laughs> oh, yeah. bottles fill back up with with the, whatever they were drinking. Yeah, it was funny. And, and then they had like a weird taste in their mouth. Oh, I, I'm so glad that they they were able to clear uh, or or purchase or whatever they had to do the the rights to get the the Queen songs because yeah. that's such a that's such a perfect thing from the book and they were like we're gonna we're gonna have it you know and I was glad to hear it. I'm sure Queen just like signed off on it. it was like I'm sure they're fans of the book. I'm sure they're oh, like here. Mm. <laughs> well, there's money so? to be had though. You know, I suspect I suspect somebody got money for this, but 
I mean, yeah, I, I just mean like you don't just because somebody's offering you money doesn't mean you have to sign off on it. So right, clearly they were right. okay they with it. Did, they off. were okay doing it. I agree. We get the scene where uh, Aziraphale and Crowley dress up uh, to go teach oh, young yeah. warlock who they think is the the Antichrist, which I just thought was man, hilarious. So good. David Tennant in drag was was really something else. <laughs> he was he was killing it, really killing it, so and good. and the voice he he was affecting was it, it was just all really good, and he seemed like he was he was really getting into it. Yeah, seemed like he was enjoying it, right? Uh, man, this whole book and 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 show by extension is just so mad. Like, there's so much happens and so many wild scenes, um, and I'm so glad that we're able to get a version that feels right. And this does, because um, while they do slow down, while they do introduce some other things, it never slows down so much that it doesn't feel like the same same thing. You know, like it still feels like the book to me, which is cool. I, I was I've, so far, though, everything we've seen, I've been really happy with. And they've they've made some changes. And honestly, a lot of those changes I, I've really, really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and I agree. Like, it's it's I think it's keeping a good pace for me. I think I think it's always a good kind of barometer if you if you read the book. And you kind of like, I, I think that's mostly what it is, is I think people might approach the show having not read the book and not understand the tone or the pace won't necessarily get as much out of it. But if you, I think if you've read the book, you will definitely appreciate the show. I'd be curious to read some reactions from people who didn't read the book and what they thought of the show, you know, just as it is. And if you're if you're one of those listeners right now and you, you would like to write in and let us know what you're thinking of it, if you haven't read the book, I am curious about that, like. How does the pace strike you? How's the the number of characters? Does it feel too erratic, or were you able to to buy in on it? I'm genuinely curious about that. The last the last couple scenes here, um, there's the Aziraphale wanting to do magic at the birthday party when the oh, Hellhound is supposed so to show good. up, which is just <laughs> so great. And and Crowley's like questioning why he would want to do fake magic when he can do real magic, and mm-hmm. it's just so funny. And and it makes Aziraphale more endearing and and such a funny, interesting character. I love it love love the fake you know the 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 rabbit that's clearly in the box and the, the he has like a dead pigeon in his in his uh sleeve that he resurrects later so he he's he's performing these miracles which this is one of these sort of shows you can't really stop and think about things too much because occasionally it'll it'll introduce plot holes so you got to be careful um because there's a few times in like later episodes where he's in danger and i'm like are you really in danger right now though with the powers i know you have but you know it's fine <laughs> It's like it's. I feel like I. There, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. He's picking and choosing like when he performs miracles. I think that it matters less in a show like this because it's just exactly. Yeah. It's not about that. Right. Yeah. It's just like uh, have fun. Don't worry about it. I just it. Uh, to, to kind of cap off this episode here. I just think that the the chemistry between Michael Sheen and David Tennant and just like the banter that they have, we see it constantly. There's all they're always mm-hmm. having conversations and it's always funny. Like I, I really there hasn't been anything that's fallen flat for me. I'm really enjoying the the first episode. Yeah, I, I did too. Well, we, we also get uh, the introduction of the Hellhound. We should talk about them a little bit. Um, giant at first. I love the setup of like, oh, he's the biggest, nastiest one we've got. And they're all terrified of him. And then he's this giant Great Dane with these massive teeth. And uh, and then and then he turns into just the cutest little dog. And uh, I, I got to give him, you know, commend them on, on casting the dog perfectly too. Because I think it's the perfect little little hellhound dog i love him i love dogs so good. <laughs> yeah and and yeah we kind of just meet the them we we're, we're we haven't really met them a lot i guess mm-hmm. here and there we have but but yeah seeing them and and the hellhound go over to adam and and just seeing how he's kind of manipulating reality already is is pretty fun so episode two is called the book a postman is given the task of summoning the four horsemen of the apocalypse 
Anathema Device, the descendant of a burned witch Agnes Nutter, arrives in England. Meanwhile, Newton Pulsiver meets Shadwell, a modern-day witchfinder who invites him to join his crusade. He also meets Madame Tracy, a harlot, medium, and landlord of Shadwell. Aziraphale and Crowley go to the nunnery to figure out what went wrong in the switch. However, all the records have been destroyed because Crowley's fellow demons burn the nunnery. Adam and his friends later meet and befriend Anathema, who lives nearby. Aziraphale and Crowley have a run-in with Anathema and accidentally take her book. Aziraphale reads the book at his bookshop and notices the accuracy of her prophecies. This was a fun episode. Um, I, this contains my favorite Gabriel scene. I think it's early on here when he shows up in the bookstore and starts loudly proclaiming that he wants to see the collection of por- pornography. <laughs> <laughs> in the in the back room in privacy or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to see the pornography. And then he like winks and like nudges the other angel. And then they get back there and it's like, oh, humans are so easy to fool. And, and Zerofell goes, going. All the humans were like reacting and like yeah. looking at him like well, he was Well, like, oh, yeah, you, you, you fooled him for sure. <laughs> it was so awesome. good. That was an amazing scene. So he throws down a giant book, and we got a close-up of the title, and it was Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management was the title of it. I don't know why we got that close-up. It's got to be referencing something. I guarantee you that it's like a British book that got like a big laugh. I'm I'm sure that it's like some proper, like, like, you know, manners book or some sort of like proper etiquette book or something like that. Hmm. And he was like, the fact that he called it pornography was probably a joke. Okay, yeah, because I, I, it went over my head. I, I'm not familiar with what that is. Um, if anybody knows and would like to share it with us, definitely write in. That'd be cool. Ink to film at gmail.com. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, oh, so we also we got also... the scene with with War, right? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, I was about to say the same thing. We got to meet War. What did you think? What did you think of her and in, in that opening scene? I think it worked as well as the scene in the in the book. I felt like it, it really got the point across. I don't. I wonder. There's a lot of this in this show that I wonder what it would be like coming in without the context of the book. Like, do yeah. you do you walk away really understanding? I think you do. I think it does work. But there's just a couple of times that I was thinking as if I hadn't read the book. Um, do you think that it's clear that she's influencing all those people to like start fighting in the first place? Like, you know, it's a, about the signature, like who's signing yeah. first? I maybe it's funny because we created this show because I feel like at least one of the reasons why I would listen to, to people talking about an adaptation and they'd never read the book before, and I'd always get frustrated. <laughs> and like they would always like screw things up that were clear in the book, or that just not have that perspective. And I wanted to ha- like have something that had the perspective. But now we're like sitting here wondering what people think of it who t- who didn't read the book. <laughs> well, that's the thing funny. is like you're not always going to get everybody <laughs> doing both, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, you're right. And and you know, I think I think she her performance as War to me was okay. Um, it, it didn't do anything. I mean, and maybe I'll change my mind as we go forward, but in this early, early goings, there was nothing that made me feel like this was, this was like a highlight performance, right? Like it was, it was, it was fine. Um, it was about as far as I would go with it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know. She wasn't, I mean, it was like, not like she had a ton to do, but no, I, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. I th- well, I, and I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be following that as we go. Um, I think, the, you know, one of the things is when she gets the sword, and the way she sort of, you know, talks about it and is excited about it. I think there was, like, just something more menacing about war in the book that maybe isn't quite in this character. Like, that that, okay. that edge of danger. Like, we get, I get that that's what they're going for. I just don't know if it was as convincing as I wanted it to be. Uh, and I don't know why that is. But, yeah, it just felt like there was something in the war in the book where we immediately felt that conflict... Um, just emanating from her 
um, in a way that that I got was being was what they were trying to say, but it just I don't know something about it didn't quite hit that same like hundred percent of efficacy that we got in the book. I see that. So we get this the flashback and we see Agnes Nutter in her last moments and yeah uh, her revenge that she has against all those people. Uh, I thought it was funny to take Jack Whitehall, who plays yeah. Pulsifer, and have him also play his ancestor. So, so an example of something that I think would have definitely been changed if the showrunner was not Neil Gaiman is the name of that character who's going to burn her being thou shalt not ki- yeah, commit, commit adultery, adultery Pulsifer. Pulsifer. Like, that's the kind of thing that is, like, kind of too confusing, honestly. Because, like, I was able to get it because I read the book, and I was like, oh, okay, that's what they're referencing. But I'm wondering, like, people who are watching this... Are, I have a feeling a lot of them are just confused by what is go- what are they talking about? I, I, when he shortens the name and he call- everybody's calling him adultery Pulsiver, like I think that it's clear. I, although I guess it's I don't, I don't know, know, man. Maybe it's some, we get so many characters who have names in in this in this novel and in, in the show that have names that like aren't normally names. <laughs> you know, like anathema. Uh, you know, yeah, adultery. Uh, just uh, different names that you're like, is is that supposed to be a name? I don't know. It's unclear. Um, right. I don't know. It just it's it's. I feel like anything that is like potentially confusing in a side character like this um, often would get adapted out <laughs> somewhere in the process. It would get left behind. But um, obviously, it was important to game and to keep it in. And so I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just think it's uh, in- indicative of. W- I, I said earlier that there are some things that we I see in this where I go, this is only because Neil Gaiman is adapting this. This is the only reason we're getting some of these details, in my opinion. And I think that's kind of the thing I'm talking about, things like that. So I wanted to mention something that Gaiman said about adapting this, um, where he somebody asked him what his favorite, what they, they think Terry would have enjoyed the most. Mm. And this is a quote from Game, and he says, "Knowing Terry, he just would have had such a great time with the nuns. Um, he he would have been hanging out with the nuns. That's what he said. So <laughs> I thought that was so funny. And, That's and cool. I, you know, I, I think that it's it's so like nice to think about that he was able to complete this journey for his friend. And and you know, we've been posting, you've been posting stuff on the Facebook group, and and I've been reading a lot about their friendship. And we mm. listened to that interview, and it's just it's the what a great friend that that he was yeah. able to to come to fruition and finish the show and and have it be the essence of what was in the book. I think that I think it's just such a great story behind the story. So I spotted a I believe it was an Easter egg for uh Terry Pratchett. Oh, yeah. Uh did you did you did you spot this as well? I didn't spot it, but I read something later. So, so tell me, tell okay. me what we saw. Well, I, I assume that's what, what they're referring to. Maybe there's another one I missed, but the one I saw was I stopped. I paused it at one point where um, I think it's Newton or maybe uh, maybe it's Aziraphale. Somebody's looking at a newspaper and they have mm-hmm. they have like a, a thing circled. I think it's about the Witchfinder. So I think it is Newton. Um, and if you, I paused it because there's a like. As prominent in the shot is this other story almost to the right of it that's not circled. And so I paused it and I read the story. The story is about Uncle Terry who lost his hat and scarf. And oh, it's wow. about like, please return it to him if you find them. It's a black hat and a scarf. And like, oh, this has like a description of it. And it's kind of like part of it's off camera, but you can read most of it. And I mm-hmm. was like, to me, like he's, he has this very like well known for his hat and his scarf. And right. It's Uncle Terry, obviously. So I thought that was a that was a nod to, yeah, to him. I to assume be. so. Yeah, yeah, it has to be. The other thing that I read was if apparently, like in Aziraphale's bookstore or something like that, you can see some of um, Pratchett's books. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, so that wasn't the one you read about? 
No, it wasn't. And then another nice. one was that you can act. I guess at some point you can actually see Terry's hat and scarf somewhere. Okay. And I don't know if we've gotten to that episode yet or not, but just everybody keep an eye out for the, the hat and scarf. Yeah, we'll do that. Um, what did you think of Anathema? They, they, to me, they, they're leaning really heavily into the witch thing because like, they gave her like Harry Potter glasses. <laughs> it's the only way I can think about those glasses she's wearing. Her hair's done in such a way that it's very reminiscent of like a witch's hat. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's good. It's very like on the nose, but I think in a, in a, in a show like this, it works. But yeah, what did you, you think? I mean, I've really liked her so far. I, I think that she's got the perfect touch of of being this sort of aloof, interesting, weird character and also being very, very intelligent and, and endearing. Like I like I like how she interacts with the them. And mm-hmm. I guess it, it is in this episode, actually, where she like walks up and they're all like torturing with the tire swing. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And I, I she's like, you guys are you guys are a trip, basically. And she's like, but I got to go. I'll talk to I'll see you later or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's cool that she's like moving and, and like her her traveling and they're like, what are you here for? And she's like, I'm coming to do th- this is this and stop the apocalypse. And they're like, what? And she's like, yeah, mm-hmm. tr- vacation. Some of these characters feel like they're made for cosplay. And that that's the, the feel I was getting from her her look when she's at the at the cottage i'm like this yeah. is going to be a character that's going to be cosplayed right um i think and yeah. you know I, I, that's not necessarily a bad thing you know that's being fully aware of like what's going to happen with your show <laughs> right but i think that's what you like I, I think that having something unique and having something memorable about a character is a good thing in yeah. terms of telling a story and people's memory and things like that as well as just making it identifiable if somebody was going to cosplay so i think smart all around I liked seeing the the prophecy of the apple you couldn't eat, you can't eat with uh, jo- like something about Steve Jobs. I couldn't remember exactly. Oh what it was, yeah, but... yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Uh, basically, the prophecy about investing in, in Apple, and that's how her uh, Anathema's family got rich. Um, that was cool. Speaking of the prophecies, there's one point where Zerfell's reading the book, and we get a bunch of the prophecies popping up on screen, and I stopped and read a bunch of them. Um, oh, yeah. And it, it, it's a lot of stuff from the book. It's a, and a lot of it's like talking about the four horsemen coming, the Leviathan rising. Um, but then there's one part that was something about like I, I don't I didn't write it down exactly, but something about playing with fire. And I'm not sure if that was an, uh, I couldn't remember that from the book. That was the one that felt different to me. Um, I'm not sure what that's referencing, but it was interesting. And so we get the interaction with them where they're talking about the ice cream and they're all eating all the food and talking about how there's like so many different flavors. And I felt right. again, I felt like it was like f- very lighthearted and, and youthful. And I, I think it wor- really works for for their scenes, the way that they're setting up, because it's so pure and, and it's like your childhood. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're doing a great job with conveying that. Well, what about uh, Michael McKean as, as Shadwell? I, I wasn't sure what who he was playing, but that but that's that's who he ended up being. He's, he's putting on quite an accent for this yeah. role <laughs> he is yeah i really liked i think my favorite part about him so far has been the his introduction where he's like out there with a sign like basically like the end is nigh type thing where you would see those kinds of people out there and he's like i'm a witch hunter we gotta form the army and and then uh pulls virgos up and and he like forces him to buy him coffee and he takes like nine sugars and all that and mm-hmm. it's it's fun he's like clearly a manic crazy character mm. oh what about pulsifer i should talk about him we also get we and it's funny because like we even get the scene of him uh, early on having all, the, you know, which I guess is important, but like early on having him, you know, shut down the power grid and, and then him go and get to go start working at his job, which I did like that those characters that were at his office are then the characters who are doing the t- team building ex- exercise later oh, I on. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Right. A couple of them were, were the, I, I'm pretty certain were the same people, um, nice. that, that were there. So that was cool. 
I like him so far. I feel like we, you know, we, we've gotten so little of him. I think that I, yeah. you know, I don't really, I can't really come down anywhere. In general, I think Jack Whitehall's, I, I think I've liked him in everything I've seen him in. He's pretty funny. There's a lot of like British comedies. Yeah, that's like oh, the actor. Sorry. I'm not familiar he with plays. him at all. He, he's a comedian and he, he's been in a lot of British comedies shows that are like some of the more popular, like teenager to like young adult ones and he's always okay. really funny in them and and his his stand-up's pretty good too so i think he's doing a good job i just don't hmm. i don't really know if i've seen enough of him to make a decision i know i saw some now you know take it this is like on the internet this could just be one random person in millions and maybe this isn't a uh, you know a big thing but i've seen some criticism um of people saying uh that he's too good looking to play newt because newt in the book is described as being less attractive yeah and I, and, and I was thinking about it and um i think I, I i come down on two i have two thoughts about it but um actually i want to hear what, what your take on it is before i hit you with mine what do you what do you think about him being being maybe perhaps too attractive to play that character i i just feel like i'm so desensitized to that at this point like i, I don't really think much of it it's it, it's just gonna happen with a tv show i feel like a lot of the time or like a movie um yeah I, it doesn't take anything away or add anything for me personally. It's just what 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 it happens Whatever. to be. I understand yeah. people who are really attached to the character wanted to identify more with somebody you know who isn't maybe like movie star level yeah. of attractiveness or whatever. But yeah, I didn't really think anything of it. So we encountered this with Ready Player One, right? With um, Parzival, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously was was described as being far less attractive in the in the books um now this is also more of a side character i mean i guess he is important but he's not i don't know there's not really like one main character in this book uh whereas parts of all clearly is in in ready player one um so on one hand it's like it's not that important and on the other hand yeah it's hollywood and they're gonna do this they're like i just feel like (laughs) you can take any 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 character and just make them you know, some percentage more attractive is what's going to happen when you put them on screen. Um, and, and we totally get that. And then, um, actually, you know what? I can't really talk about the second one cause it's kind of a spoiler for what happens in the next three episodes. So instead I'm going to put a pin in that until, until our next episode, then I'll remind me and we'll revisit this. Um, hopefully I'll remember, um, because there is something I want to talk about more with that, but, um, yeah, can't talk about it without spoiling what's going to happen in the future. Okay. Well, until that time, we're going to talk about episode three. But the last scene I want to talk about in episode two is the the scene where um, Crowley and Aziraphale are in the car and they hit Anathema or Anathema hits them, according to Crowley. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it plays out like it does in the book. They, they Just like it. He, actually, he, he heals her bones, I guess. I don't remember that being Oh, in the book, yeah, that's true. Which was yeah, I don't think cool. she was as hurt. Yeah, that was And cool. then, you know, fixes the bike and then turns it back when they drop it off. Um, mm-hmm really funny stuff and then the book gets left in the car and and that's when Aziraphale is able to read it uh and I love the bicycle song with Queen because it's like I want (laughs) I want to ride my bicycle and it just matches up well with the bicycle and more Queen Mm -hmm. so and yeah and and I love uh seeing his care he takes getting the gloves out to touch this book and um I I just seeing the actual shop because that's something you don't get a lot of in the book right you don't get a lot of setting description (laughs) very rarely and that's something we get a lot of in the show, obviously, because you get to see these scenes come to life and they've populated them with tons of things. And that's one of my favorite parts of seeing an adaptation like this is just it's just they have to fill in all those details. And it's really cool. Whereas when you're and reading, you, you fill them all in your mind, but um, you're supplying them on your end, whereas they're giving it to you here. And I think that this I thought we talked about the costuming, but the set design is great as well. I think that it's yeah. all been really like I said before, it's very cinematic looking. It's great to look at. And I think they're making a lot of good decisions. 
The third episode, which I want to jump into, is called Hard Times. The episode begins with a series of historical and biblical events that Aziraphale and Crowley have witnessed and experienced and shows how their friendship grew. Among these events are Noah's Ark, medieval times, World War II, the French Revolution, the crucifixion of Jesus, and meeting William Shakespeare. In present day, Adam comforts Anathema after she loses her book. Both Aziraphale and Crowley separately send Shadwell to find Adam. Shadwell later sends Newton there to investigate. Aziraphale tries to tell Gabriel and the forces of heaven about the Antichrist switch-up, but they do not seem to care and later cast suspicion on him. Meanwhile, Adam mysteriously makes a nuclear reactor disappear from an airbase because of what Anathema told him. We start the episode with a massive change, and it's a long one too. I think it's about mm-hmm. half the episode, and it's a cold open as well. We don't get the we yeah. don't get the opener until like thirty minutes into the episode, and this is definitely my favorite change, and maybe one of my favorite parts of the show so far. This this Agreed. interaction that we get. This is my favorite episode of the three that we've watched, and I think that's a large reason why. Um, absolutely agree. Yeah, it's great. I mean, just the, going to each time period and and seeing the set design in general and and then just the interaction the there's the costuming man they all right. look they're the costumes in every different time period is so good just love it man but even like starting with something like um i can't i think it starts with noah's no, ark noah's ark yeah yeah it's so funny the unicorn runs away and crowley's yeah. like you're, you're up it's too late it's gone well in the in the point they're putting they're making about gods um not the necessarily uh you know, great history of always doing the right thing, right? Like Crowley's like, he's going to murder all the little children. You see Aziraphale's doubt saying like, yeah, even the little children, but there's, he's going to make gonna a, a rainbow. rainbow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, that's pretty fucked up. And, and, and you can see why maybe Aziraphale has a little bit of doubt about the ineffable plan. And we can see how like Crowley is able to, um, I don't know, get in there and, 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 and start to over, over many, many years, start to kind of pull a zero fail away from, from just towing company line. Yeah. And like we, I, like I said, it's not, not most of this isn't in the book and, and seeing yep. like the crucifixion when they were there and yeah, talking about so, how like the, he's like, what was his crime? What did he do? And he just basically was saying, be good to one another. And he's like, oh, that'll do it. And just, <laughs> that'll do it. Yeah. It's, it's just so, so good. Perfect. God damn, man. It's, really um, good. I was I forgot to mention this in our book coverage, um, but yeah, they don't mention Jesus at all in the book. Um, yeah. I don't think ever mentioned at all, and so it felt kind of like a weird omission to me. And then I, I but I remember thinking like, well, um, it was probably it's probably just too hot to touch, and they just don't want to mess with it because that's how mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot of people upset. Um, I like to see that this show went there, right? Because I have a feeling this is going to upset some people, right? And we get kind of a really dark crucifixion scene right like it's pretty brutal right and and they're just standing there watching it and it's it's i'm glad they did it though yeah i'm happy they went there i think it was effective and and like i think it adds that depth like as much as this is a comedy i think that they do a good job of adding some great questions and and making people think about more than just kind of uh everyday life well and i should also mention they don't ever say son of god he's just somebody getting crucified for saying something so He did, they don't say he's not, you know. Um, so I think the show is sort of uh, doesn't come down either way about whether or not Jesus actually is the Son of God, but um, they still talk about it. So you know, yeah, I I think uh, I think it was well done and I think it was well handled. Um, man, yeah. then we get so, we, then we get what Shakespeare after that? I, no, or I think no, it's, the, the next one is the Knights. Yeah, the, the, the Knights Black are really Knight good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that's strong Monty Python vibes, man. Exactly. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Very Monty, Monty Python. The other one we, we, that we get, and I don't know if these are in order as, as much anymore, but I think the next one is is uh, the French Revolution one, right? Or no, we get Rome. Mm. We get Rome before we even get Oh, yeah. Times, Ro- Rome is like a brief thing about him just wanting oysters, right? Or, or yeah. recommending. he. So that's almost just like a moment in their friendship. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's recommending he try oysters. Yeah. Um, I, I just then, like to see then, them over time uh, becoming softer and softer towards one another. This is really cool, man. Like seeing the evolution of their relationship was really good. And then, uh, yeah, and then we get uh, some really funny stuff with William Shakespeare, steals a line from Crowley. <laughs> All that was really funny. And then the French Revolution is when uh, he comes to save the day. Crowley comes to save Aziraphale. Yeah, which I was like, can, can, can he just like miracle his own shackles off? Is he actually... Yeah trapped here i I don't doesn't he say something about uh (laughs) oh he says something about like oh if i die here like it'll be a great inconvenience and like there'll be some paperwork to be done um yeah you would think he just miracle his way out but i mean it made for a pretty interesting scene where he comes and saves them and that's what's important oh speaking of speaking of um how you can't really overanalyze this show there was a part early on where uh aziraphale says uh during the during the flood stuff with the noah's ark he says, like, oh, I don't think I don't think he's upset with the Native Americans. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> is anybody is there such a thing as America yet at that point? And would they call it America? Uh, who is he referring? You know, I started thinking about all these things. And I'm like, you know, what? it doesn't matter. <laughs> don't worry about it, Luke. Stop overanalyzing this show. <laughs> um, I liked in the French Revolution that Aziraphale was willing to go into the French Revolution so that he could have some crepes. Like he was across yeah, the way, and like it was just really funny and really fitting of his character. Um, and then one, I think probably my favorite one was the World War II sequence, where yeah. they're in a church and there's like some spying going on, uh, like some double backstabbing spies, and and Crowley comes into the church and he like can't walk. He's like hopping around because it's like hot. He it's hard for <laughs> like him to walk sand. in the church. It's funny. Yeah. Oh god, it was really good. And then and then yeah, we get uh, like Hitler's looking for all of the the spear of destiny and all the all the right. different Ark of the Covenant, all that stuff. Right, because he because he was really like super into cultist stuff like that. Right, and then like they were looking for this copy of of uh, Agnes Nutter's book. Mm-hmm. and and you know Aziraphale talks about how like oh there's only one copy and but there was one one prophecy that had been written about and it's don't don't invest in or don't buy Betamax Betamax yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he's like all right we'll tell Hitler <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it was good and then we we do get one more I think a little later in the 70s and where we, we, we meet a young Shadwell um and his first interaction and and I mean every one of these the costumes for Aziraphale and Crowley are so good. Like they're time specific, time specific sunglasses. You know, it's just so good. Really good it. stuff. Uh, this is, and so basically he's been setting up a heist. Crowley's been setting up a heist because he wants to kind of like French connection, kind of like trying to set up this crazy heist. And uh, the holy water. He wants, he the, wants holy the whole, water. he wants the holy water because he wants a backup plan if everything goes south. And, and this is when, Aziraphale is basically just gives it to him and says like you don't need to do a heist for this and and you know that you can see there's a couple moments within all of these scenes where we see them really like shocked at how much the other person cares for them and and I think this is a yeah strong moment. and Crowley offering to give him a ride anywhere he wants to go and yeah it's a sweet moment you know between these two characters something I love about the fact that he offers him a ride and the way that Aziraphale turns him down is, is he says something about how like no you go too fast for me and I was yeah. thinking about like in terms that of the relationship was, yeah. as well. Like yeah. I, th- I thought that was a really great piece of writing. Yeah, and and, and fuel to the fire. 
as we said before. <laughs> right. Because uh, that seems like a touch more than platonic to me. Absolutely. So that's like the first half of, and then we get the, the intro sequence, which was, it was cool to get like a 30 minute cold open of, of all their history yeah, together. Yeah, it was very and then, cool. But, and but I we, love that whole sequence. So good. And it really makes what happens later in the episode pay, like pay off really well too. Exactly. Like as soon as yeah. we come back to the present day, Aziraphale is like doubting their friendship and like he basically realizes like, oh, we need to, heaven needs to know about the switch and like they need to do something about this and stop the apocalypse and mm-hmm. i shouldn't be working with the demon and and you know it culminates in that scene at the end of the at the end of the episode but w- we'll get there so shadwell naming uh, all the all of his like kind of the superiors and we learn about this his superiors who actually run the witchfinder network here uh what was it tin can and and milk jug and yeah was one of the funniest things probably the funniest thing in the show to me uh where he's and then crowley shows up and he he asks him like uh you got to send some people to go find to go find adam and and basically he's like yeah i'll send my best agents agent table and agent (laughs) fork or whatever i can't remember the other Mm -hmm. one he says but he's just like he's not creative with his with his uh, other agents and stuff yeah agent pepper yeah and and I do love that both of them have the same network of of agents. It's, you know, it's Shadwell and both both accounts. Funny stuff. Um, I, yeah, I'm excited for some things to come with this plotline, um, but I won't get into them. We see that that the angels and and heaven have basically turned on a zero fail and have said like, no, we're the we want the war to happen and and it's coming. So just just get prepared for it. Uh, and we get Adam who is kind of with anathema and learning about a lot of conspiracies and things wrong with the world and what's what's okay but what's wrong and it leads to at the end of the episode this the nuclear reactor disappearing but the power is still going it just doesn't need a reactor anymore because he's kind of you know disappeared this reactor but they still need the power so this brought up something really this was a weird feeling for me because the other thing that i've been watching recently is (laughs) is chernobyl have you i i really want to watch chernobyl and this I haven't, was haven't yet. so I've you know hearing hearing nuclear reactor right now I'm very sensitive to this because <laughs> the show is just horrifying and and it's like it's tough to I mean it's great TV and it's like really important stuff but goddamn if if it isn't harrowing and and tough to watch yeah uh, I want to watch it now just the the idea that they like look down I got a lot of anxiety when they look down towards the reactor because uh, just if you've seen chernobyl you'll know what i'm talking about it's it's like <laughs> it was like i was really anxious i was like don't look down there that's a bad that's idea that's interesting because there's no way that was planned or, or no something no way that i even thought about it just happened to be that way well it's in the yeah. book so it was in the 90s yeah exactly no that's so true it, yeah. obviously there's no connection it's just it, it was i just had a lot of anxiety it was a weird overlap my wires <laughs> were getting crossed and i was just like well yeah. fuck oh, the reactor we gotta be careful yeah so we did. Uh, we did get some more uh, interaction between Adam and Anathema. We get uh, the the introduction of what's his name, like the 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 busybody in town. And uh, at one point, he says something about her smoking her fatty spliffers. I think is what he says. <laughs> <laughs> made me laugh. Yeah, and she even re- repeats it like fatty spliffers. <laughs> I think that's what he says. <laughs> yeah. And then, oh man, uh, we also get the introduction of famine here. And I, there was a, this is not something from the book, and I absolutely loved it. The first course is a balloon of lavender-scented air. He <laughs> blows it in her face. <laughs> so good. I want to go to a restaurant where they do that. <laughs> and I was just thinking about how this is such a brilliant way to play famine in a way that isn't too dark. Because 
if you think about it, famine as a force in the world is a very dark and sad thing. And we could have had famine in like a, you know, a, you know, run down African city where everyone's starving to death. And, and instead we get him in a rich restaurant feeding rich people, you know, lavender scented air and stuff. So it's like, we, we can all laugh at them because they're idiots and they're doing it to themselves. And you know what I mean? Like we can still feel good about what's happening, even though it is still kind of dark, but it's not as full blown dark as it could be. Well, it gets to be a little more real when you think about like how many people eat fast food and we see the fast food place where sure. he's like, oh, here's because then you're like, yeah, shit, people like, you know, people who are in like what you would consider like a lower financial situation are probably mm-hmm. going to be more more likely to go somewhere like a fast food restaurant. And, you know, the commentary that's being made here Chow. is very obvious. <laughs> Chow. Yeah. yeah. The commentary is very obvious and people, you know, it's the stuff's super bad for you and people still eat it all the time. And and, yeah. and I mean, it's just the idea that like they don't care what's being put into it. And you can see from he's very deliberately putting nothing in it so that. Well, know, and it's like I feel like he's also poking fun at like diet culture, too, which is kind of smart. It's like, you know, these people are kind of doing it to themselves at the same time. It's like this is a way right. to lose weight. And um, the obsession with image and bodily image and that having famine behind it, I think kind of makes sense. Now you had to have seen yeah, I saw the it. Elvis cameo, yeah, I saw which yeah. is definitely only for book readers. They, there's absolutely no reason for that. No, there's no the setup. Otherwise. Yeah. There's no there's setup at yeah. all. So it was literally just like, Oh, Elvis, he's, he's around. <laughs> I mean, he, he'd be way too old now, but they just, they just threw that in there. This is a little nod to book readers. And that's so cool. Like that's game and just saying like, Hey guys, I see you. And I'm giving this to you. This is just cool. This is off like random. But since we read the book, I was playing this game um, headbands where you have like a you have like a somebody's name on your forehead and everybody's trying to like you're asking questions and people are saying yes or no. And is this somebody, like the, the game from Inglorious Bastards when they're down in the basement? No, it's I mean, kind of, I guess. King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> but like so like somebody got Elvis. They had Elvis on their headband and like we were they were asking questions trying to get there and they were mm-hmm. like, am I still alive? And because I had just read the book, I was like, maybe. <laughs> pretty funny good stuff last scene that i would definitely want to talk about is the scene in this like gazebo area with azir yeah. fail and, and crowley like meeting and, and kind of like breaking up a little bit that's what i wrote it down as i said the breakup scene yep yeah and it definitely is like if you're looking at like a prototypical breakup scene in a film or anything like that yep. this is very much in line with that and and the way that the character's reacting and and i think it works for the character like you said whether it's platonic or not it's it's mm. clear that they care about each other and this is a, a big kind of breakup moment yeah it's heartbreaking but it's also like hopefully they get back together and figure it yeah. out uh but everything yeah. that's set that's set up at the beginning of the episode is really i think really is what makes this this uh come down really strong yeah so this made me think about so martin george r, r. martin um often has this i think it's a uh faulkner quote perhaps i might i might be misremembering it but he likes to say it when he talks about the battle of good and evil. He talks about how in Lord of the Rings, battle of good and evil is very externalized. But in his stories, he wants the battle to take place within the own individual human heart. And so it's a very internal battle of good and evil. And I was thinking of that quote when I was watching the scene, and I was thinking about how Aziraphale and Crowley seem like they are symbolic representations of good and evil within humanity, right? They're both, they're both, they've gone native, as it's said in the book. They're both given into their human natures. And they're sort of loved with each other, their interaction with each other, but then also they're kind of like at odds with each other, battling. To me, that's all very reminiscent, or you can like, uh, you can extrapolate out from that, like an extended metaphor about 
about that that same struggle that Martin, I think, is referencing, right? Like the individual human heart, good and evil, except for this is writ large and, and all of humanity's sort of conscience, you know, and, and the interaction between good and evil in a way that isn't um, biblical, but is more personal. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, I like that. And I, and I like that, that to me, like, it can be this sort of extended metaphor in that way and that it can lend some weight to their relationship in a way that I honestly had just, just started thinking of that I really like. I don't know what you think of that. No, yeah, I definitely like that because it's this idea that like the, the you know, the darker and lighter sides of ourselves, like there there are pros and cons to them. You know, there, right. there are good things and I think you pick and choose the things and kind of stick to your moral grounds. And I think yeah. that's what these characters are doing is what, yeah. because they're good, they can also see that if something's too righteous and too good and doing something for for the maybe the right reasons but ultimately isn't isn't the right thing to do it's worth questioning and and which you know i think is is admirable and then you know some of the some of the best art of all time has come from the dark side so yeah (laughs) we'll leave it at that yeah i like that and 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 they have this common ground right of this shared experience that they can interact with and 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 connect over and i think that that is uh also really true for sort of like the good and evil within us are not mutually exclusive wholly. Like there is overlap there right. and uh common ground and, and it's all caught up in being human. And so I, I, to me that all comes across in the relationship and I really like that. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. So I just have one more thing to say about Neil Gaiman. I, I read that he, and I think, that, I don't know, I think you might get a kick out of this, but he okay. said that, he this is the one and only time he's going to do this he's never going to like adapt his own stuff again really Um, he says that he really thinks that he prefers being a novelist and doesn't really love the uh (laughs) being a showrunner wow he said he said stuff about how uh he's like you know you wake up at 5 a.m and there's a car waiting for you at 5 30 and you go somewhere really cold and it's probably raining and it's just like he's basically just saying like it's it's it could be pretty miserable and you're constantly making decisions one after another after another you're putting out fires and uh you know Hmm. it seems like he prefers being able to uh take his time and and write a novel on his own and relax yeah long hand and a leather bound uh journal as we as we uh heard on the tim ferris uh interview that he did um yeah i mean the guy's a classic writer so that totally makes sense that he but i mean i i big props to him for doing it and taking this on clearly it's an important project for him he talks about it a lot in that interview um his relationship with terry and how he he knew that this had to be done right and and the, the idea that it was like he didn't really it seems like he didn't really trust somebody else to do it. Like he's like, I got to do this thing myself to make sure it's done right. And so far I think he's, he's nailing it and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm looking forward to these next three episodes for sure. Yeah. I can't wait to, to watch the next three. It was really tough. I know I say this a lot on the show, but it was really tough to not watch the next three episodes, especially with people <laughs> texting me and calling me and talking to me about uh, trying to talk to me about the show. Like, so many people binged this thing over the weekend, obviously, and watched all of it. Um, I hope that there is a percentage of people like me who, because I tend to actually draw things out a little bit. I, I'm somebody who likes to, um, you know, like if I get a, you know, a sleeve of Oreos, I'll like have a few per day until they're gone mm-hmm. instead of just like gorging on them. And that's how I am with a lot of TV. Like even if I have all the episodes, I won't necessarily watch them all back to back to back. Maybe I'll do two here and there, but I tend to spread it out a little bit more. Um, I yeah. like to do that. And uh, so I did not binge. I did not want to binge the whole series season over the weekend. Like I wanted it to last a little longer than that. It kind of depends on on the material for me. Um, in this case, I definitely would have watched more, uh, especially because mm. I watched this like I think Friday, 
So mm. I watched it pretty early on and, and, and it's been a couple of days since. So I, I've definitely had the time to watch more, but I couldn't. Um, yeah, I, th- I feel like in general, I, I, it depends. I think more dramatic things and things that take a lot of your concentration, I, I tend to, to kind of, even if I get them all in one go, I tend to kind of try to space them out. But there are yeah. things that I'll just binge right through. Like, I'm sure that when like Stranger Things, the next season comes out, I'll just knock that out. And and see, that's one that I, I will probably draw out longer because that's the kind of show where I like to um, stop and, and sort of like savor it and like reflect on something I've just seen right. for a little while before I immediately leap into the next episode. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We're getting off in the weeds now. I think it's time to, to end this thing. We will be back next week for episodes four through six and our final thoughts on the show and on this project as we put a bow on it. Um, we hope you join us for that. So this week we wanted to thank one of our patrons, Jamie D. We wanted to thank you for helping support this podcast and helping us to continue on. Yeah, and if you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film, and you can find all the bonus content that we're offering, which is, I think right now, 13 bonus episodes, including a big discussion of season eight of Game of Thrones that we had, uh, where we were commiserating over some things. So um, if you're curious about that sort of thing, definitely check it out. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film and join our Council of Inklings on Facebook. And if you would like to help this podcast out in another way, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever app you use to find us. And that helps us get the word out and helps us keep doing this thing. Thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. And thank you to Music Lover for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. I think that's it for this week. So until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.